0: Bruce is going to be continuing in his series talking about running to the finish. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Pew Bibles, and you can find it starting at the bottom of page 698, moving quickly over to page 699. But if you'd follow along with me as I read, "For those for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest." And the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to the mountain Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable companies of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to spirits of men just made perfect, to uh, Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than uh, than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Whose voice then shall the earth but now has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain." Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, your many warnings to us who can be dense at times. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. I pray that uh, today you would uh, use Bruce's words to inspire us and make us realize the ever-present um, demands that you have for us. Um, I pray that you would use this, his words in our lives today. And I thank you for all that you've done. In your name, amen.
1: Well, this morning, we are concluding a series that we've been in for the last five weeks, a series that we have called Triumphant. And in this series, we have been learning what it takes to be triumphant in running this race that God has set before us. In fact, there's been one driving theme throughout the whole chapter here in Hebrews 12. And that is, we run with endurance and we finish this race that God has given to us. And do that and you will be triumphant. But we all know doing that is easier said than done. And so the author here, he exhorts us once again as he has exhorted us all through Hebrews chapter 12 and in this concluding section here of the chapter, he he comes to us and exhorts us once more to run to the finish. And this time he gives us this, this glorious beautiful picture of what that finish looks like he wants us to see in other words the finish that we are running towards he wants us to if I can say this he wants us to tattoo this finish on our hearts he doesn't want us to miss it he wants this finish to be emblazed upon us and for us to grip it and for it to be at the forefront of our minds and thoughts as we run this race Why? Because he knows that if you can't see the finish, eventually you will give up. And eventually you will quit the race. And you will not finish. Whenever I think of seeing the finish, I think of this story about Florence Chadwick. When she looked ahead, Florence Chadwick saw nothing but a solid wall of fog. Her body was numb. She had been swimming for nearly 16 hours. Already she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. Now at the age of 34, her goal was to become the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And so on that 4th of July morning back in 1952, the sea was like an ice bath. And the fog was so dense, she could hardly see her support boats. Sharks cruised toward her lone figure only to be driven away by rifle shots. Against the frigid grip of the sea she struggled on hour after hour after hour while millions of people watched on national television. Alongside Florence in one of the boats her mother and her trainer offered words of encouragement. They told her it wasn't much further but all she could see was fog. They urged her not to quit. She never had Until then, with only a half mile to go, she asked to be pulled out of the water. Still thawing her chilled body, several hours later, she told the reporter, Look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have just seen land, I might have made it. But when you can't see your goal, you lose all sense of progress and you begin to give up. And so it wasn't fatigue or even the cold water that defeated her. It was the fog. She was unable to see the finish. Two months later, she tried again. This time, despite the same dense fog, she swam with her faith intact and her finish clearly pictured in her mind. She knew that somewhere behind that fog was land, and this time she made it. Florence Chadwick became the first woman to swim the Catalina Channel, eclipsing the men's record by two hours. And in the same way, if we, if we here, those of us who, who claim to be Christ's followers, if we are going to run to the finish, then we must see the finish. It's the proverbial cliche that you've heard, keep your eye on the prize, and it is so true. And so the author of Hebrews comes to us once again here in chapter 12, and he exhorts us to run to the finish. He exhorts us here to look up and to look ahead to the finish. Look again with me. See what he's. we are running toward. Look again at the finish, and notice what he says in verse 22. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So look up and see that finish. But he's not done. He also tells us to look ahead here in verse 28 where he says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, it's interesting. Scholars actually think that the the book of Hebrews was originally delivered as one complete sermon all 13 chapters and you thought I preached long sometimes in chapter 12 here was the crescendo of the sermon it was the the climax if you will when he starts bringing everything home to a finish and this finish is pictured for us by the heavenly Jerusalem in the unshakable city the unshakable kingdom of God that is what we're running toward. And so the author says basically to us, hey, listen, don't quit. Keep running this race and run to the finish. And so what I want us to do here for the next few minutes is I want us to kind of zoom in on these two pictures of the finish. And as we do, I, I pray that God will use The words here in Hebrews 12 to encourage you, to motivate you, to challenge you, and perhaps even convict you to keep running this race, to run to the finish. And so let's zoom in on it. Let's look at it here. Number one, look up to the heavenly Jerusalem of God. Now, before we do, before we look up to the heavenly city of God here at Mount Zion, we first need to see the significance of Mount Sinai. Perhaps the two most prominent mountains in all of Scripture are Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. At Mount Sinai, God's law was given. In fact, it was at Mount Sinai where the Hebrew nation was technically established. At Mount Zion, that was once the stronghold of the Jebusites, but King David later on made it the place of the Ark of the Covenant in the city of Jerusalem. And so because of this, Mount Zion, in essence, became the center of life, the focal point for the nation of Israel. And so both of these mountains here were deeply significant to the Jewish nation. In fact, these two mountains were inseparable in the minds of a Jewish person. But what the author of Hebrews does here is is he kind of contrasts these two mountains for us. And so you have Mount Sinai and you have Mount Zion that are contrasted. Let me just give you a little bit of the backdrop, the background story of Mount Sinai, which kind of represents here for us, and the way that the author of Hebrews is using it, representing the old covenant of the law in the Old Testament. Israel has been called to the promised land. As you know the story, back in Egypt, uh, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and so they leave Egypt, and they're marching through the wilderness, and when they come to Mount Sinai, that is where God gives his people His law, His holy law. We we know it as the Ten Commandments. This was an awesome, awesome display of God's holiness, and yet, at the same time, let me tell you, it was a terrifying place to be. On Mount Sinai. In fact, look how it's described for us by our author in verses 18 through 21. Look at the picture here. He tells us, for you have not come to the mountain, he's speaking of Mount Sinai here, that may be touched, and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest or thunderstorms, and the sound of a trumpet in the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. What word? The word of God. For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling and so what we see here is the people were more visibly in physically assaulted with the holiness of God at Mount Sinai. Sinai was fiery, and yet it was dark and gloomy. It burned with fire. It was covered with blackness and darkness and thunderstorms. The blazing fire emphasized that the holiness of God rendered him as a judge. As the author says at the conclusion here, God is this consuming fire. One author writes this, scholar, Bible scholar. He says, the mountain here, speaking of Mount Sinai, it was so charged with the holiness of God who manifested himself there that for a man or beast to touch it meant certain death. Therefore, this trumpet that was sounding, it was not an invitation to come to God. Oh no, it was a warning to keep your distance from such a holy God. Even Moses was terrified by God's holiness that he said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling, and yet Mount Sinai plays an important role for us as well. God's holy law was given there. What significance does it hold for us? We'll notice this, the first purpose of Mount Sinai, God's law here shows us that, that sinful people like us can't be in the presence of a holy God. That's one of the purposes of the law. Even if we touched God's holiness as sinful people, we would be killed. It would be like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun poof. As one author points out, under the Old Covenant, the emphasis was on the infinite. Distance between God and man Therefore Sinai should put into us a a proper fear of God A reverence of God, an awe of God But fear, let me tell you folks, fear is never enough You see the great problem with Mount Sinai Was that while we see God's holiness Against the backdrop of our sinfulness The law provided no power For us to overcome our sin. No wonder Paul calls the law a a ministry of death. It's the standard by which we will be judged, and yet no one is able to fulfill the law perfectly. And so, Sinai is this mountain of God's holy judgment upon sin. It, It pictures, it's a picture of what it will be like on Judgment Day. For all those who are still trusting in their own righteousness. Trying to attain to the standard of God's holiness and yet they always fall short. And so the fire of judgment that we see on Mount Sinai is just a glimpse of the judgment for those that they will see and they will experience on judgment day. If we are trusting in our own righteousness. Which brings us to the second purpose of the law. God's law shows us that we desperately need Jesus Christ as our mediator. You see, at Mount Sinai, Moses and Aaron were the only ones who were allowed to go up the mountain into God's presence. But the people cannot draw near to God through Moses and Aaron. Why? Well, because they were just men they were men like us. They were men with sin of their own. But Jesus Christ now is our sinless high priest who offered himself as our sacrifice. Paul writes to us in 1 Timothy 2.5 and he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind and that is the man, Jesus Christ. And so folks, I don't know what you're thinking about this, but let me tell you, this is phenomenal news. This is good news. This is better news than the Jayhawks winning their first college football game in over three years. This news is phenomenal news. This is great news. The author here is saying something to these Hebrews and to us that God never said to Moses. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Yes, the road to Zion goes through Sinai, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ here, you have not come to that mountain. I love what Philip Hughes writes. He says, Such were the terrors of Sinai, the mount of God's law, where because of their sinfulness, the people were unable to draw near to God's presence. How different are the circumstances of Zion? the mount of God's grace, where thanks to the perfect law-keeping and the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our stead, we now are invited to draw near to God with boldness into the heavenly holy of holies. This is why the author declares, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, in verse 18, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in verse 22. The contrast here is, is dramatic. Instead of a picture of terror, we now have a picture of triumph. And the words, you have come, oh, those are mighty significant words. These words, you have come, they speak of drawing near. And in this case, it's drawing near to a holy God. And they indicate that you have been brought into the very presence of God, not because you are so righteous and holy that you can, but because you have the righteousness of Christ covering you. You are in Christ. You are in His righteousness. His righteousness is in you. And so because of that, you are brought near through Jesus Christ. Look up. Look up You have come to Mount Zion, the mountain of grace, he says. God has bridged the gap between his holiness and your sinfulness. He has granted you spiritual access to this heavenly city through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He, in other words, is our passport into God's Presence. We are still running this race. Yes, we have not yet crossed the finish line in our physical bodies, but we have already crossed it in spirit. Look up. Here is now. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4-7, through seven, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, In Jesus Christ. Look up. Listen, you have come to Mount Zion. And the author wants you to see two things in regards to this mountain. First of all, look up and see the city that you have come to. Now this is not just any city though. Verse 22 tells us, But you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And according to Hebrews 11 verse 10, this is the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is nonetheless God himself. When King Solomon built the temple, the city of Jerusalem at Mount Zion became synonymous with the earthly dwelling place of God. But in Christ... We now have come to its heavenly counterpart, the spiritual Jerusalem from above. In one sense, this is, quote, still to come, according to Hebrews 13, 14. But we have also already arrived there in spirit. Right now, this city is invisible to us. We can't see it with our human eyes. But folks, let me remind you, it is far more real than any city that has ever existed in the history of the world. And one day, oh, one day, this city will be very visible to us. This is the same city that John, the Apostle John, saw coming down out of the heaven to earth in Revelation 21.2. John goes on to say that this city, the new Jerusalem, represents God's dwelling with his people and promises that when it comes down, God will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, no more weeping, no more pain. Don't you look forward to that city? What a glorious, triumphant scene this will be. And that is the picture the author is painting for us. This is what we look up and see as we run to the finish. But he also tells us not only just see the city, he says look up and see the citizens that you have come to that inhabit the city of God. Look at this, verse 22. He says, you have come to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly. In other words, there's so many, you can't even count them. We have come to a great gathering of angels, celebrating and praising God. Angels were also present at Mount Sinai. But the people could not join the angels at Mount Sinai. The angels were not celebrating at Mount Sinai. They were were blowing the trumpets of judgment at that mountain. But now we have come to Mount Zion. We now, we are being welcomed by the angels. They are in a sense a welcoming party and they are inviting us to join their worship of God. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Verse 23 says, You have come to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now Jesus is the ultimate firstborn. And by virtue of our union with him, we here, if you are in Christ, you are what is considered the firstborn spiritually speaking. Which means, because I'm a firstborn physical child, and those of you, you, if you're a firstborn physical child, you may know this, Which means we get the rights of inheritance as the firstborn. All right, for all you second and third and fourthborn children, I'm, I'm sorry you're out in the physical world. But spiritually, because all of us, if we have put our faith and trust in Christ, every one of us here, we are firstborns. In fact, we are a church full of firstborns. Of eldest sons of God. There are no second or third sons and daughters in the church. We all get the big inheritance as co-heirs with Christ. And there is more as firstborn. Oh, this is so awesome. Our names, your name, is registered in heaven. Written in the Lamb's book of life. Never to be erased. Never to be deleted. That is what we come to. Verse 23 goes on and says, you have come to God, the judge of all. We come to Mount Zion to meet the God of Sinai, who is the judge of all. To come into God's presence at Sinai, folks, listen, was to die. But to come into the presence of God at Mount Zion was to live, which means what is a throne of judgment for unbelievers is now a throne of grace for believers in jesus christ and so knowing this truth knowing this reality oh my we come before god in awe in fear because we know that he is the judge of all he is a consuming fire but we do not come in dread Because we also know that Jesus has borne the judgment for us, and He's paid the entire debt of our sin. Amen Amen is right. He took my place. And so I don't have to stand in judgment before God, because Jesus already did on the cross. Verse 23 goes on and says, You have come to the spirits of just men made perfect. These believers, and some scholars think it only refers to Old Testament believers, some think it refers to all believers, it doesn't matter. What matters most is these believers have already died, they've gone to heaven, and they have not yet received their new resurrected bodies, but their spirits are made perfect. These believers, in other words, they've already crossed the finish line. And that includes the witnesses that we learned about in the very first message in this series in Hebrews 11. Just think about it. When we come to this city, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, we will join the likes of Abel and Abraham, Moses and David, and all the other witnesses in one great household of God. And then he finally he tells us in verse 24, You have come to jesus the mediator of the new covenant into the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of abel this is the best of all we come to our savior our redeemer our mediator with god because of his shed blood for us on the cross you go back to genesis chapter 4 and you read the story of when Cain killed Abel. And when Cain killed Abel there, let me tell you, we are told that his blood, Abel's blood that is, cried from the ground and it cried out for vengeance and judgment. But Christ's blood that was shed for us on the cross, listen, it shouts this, we are forgiven and that we have peace with God. Hallelujah! Jesus' blood still speaks today. And it says, what was impossible for us has happened. That we are forgiven of our sins because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you have not come to Mount Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, the mountain of grace. Yes, we are grateful For Mount Sinai. You know why? Because we need to know the guilt and penalty of our sin. But Mount Zion gives us forgiveness for our sin. With all its blessings to enjoy. And so the author here, he contrasts these two mountains. And he says, let's basically keep running the race... Look up to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the finish you are running toward. But the author of Hebrews is not done. He also gives us another picture to focus on as we run to the finish. Number two, he says look ahead now to the unshakable kingdom of God. The author tells us in verse 28 that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Now, this has to be the greatest news in all the world. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are receiving it. After all, everyone is searching for a kingdom like that. We desperately crave safety and security and stability. We want a place of permanence. We want a place of prosperity and peace. But this world in which we live seems to be anything but permanent and peaceful. Anything but secure and stable. And so people do whatever they can, whatever they can within their means and within their power to create then this temporary sense of life that is unshakable this is some of the reasons why people get married and have a family it's why they might buy a house, it's why they buy insurance, it's why they try to save for retirement and some go so far as to build a doomsday shelter. Washington DC is considered the most powerful city in the world by some people in fact it's been said that when Washington sneezes the rest of the world catches pneumonia. Right now if you go to Washington, D.C., you've probably seen it on, in pictures, the Capitol building is encased with scaffolding all the way to the top as the repairs are being made on that building, which just goes to show you what a vivid picture that is of how things in this world need to be propped up precisely because they are not permanent. Yes, as greatly influential as Washington, D.C., is, It does not remotely compare to the far greater city of God. Washington, like every other city in this world, will one day be shaken to its foundation, but the city of God is unshakable. And so as you run to the finish line, folks, listen to me, look ahead to the unshakable kingdom of God. The only kingdom that will endure is God's kingdom. It will remain forever and ever. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, then your security, your stability is found in none other than God's kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. The author of Hebrews declares that you are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, which implies that we have already received it, and yet it is still to come in its fullness. In other words, there is going to come a day when a literal kingdom will be here on this earth. And Jesus will establish it, and He will fulfill all the promises in the Old Testament to Israel, and we will be a part of it. It is known as the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. That's what we look forward to. That is the picture to tattoo on your heart. And so the author then, He poses this dilemma to us. Because until God's kingdom comes in its fullness, we have this tendency within us to be wooed by the world's kingdom, to run after passing pleasures and temporary treasures. And so, the author now, in his final conclusion, he gives us one more warning. It's like his final warning as we run to this finish. He doesn't want us to abandon the race. He doesn't want us to miss out on receiving God's unshakable kingdom. In other words, he's warning us, don't be like Esau, as we learned last Sunday. Who despised the offer of God's grace for the sake of short-term pleasures. Esau considered what God promised and he basically said in his heart no deal give me the sex and give me the stew I want the immediate gratification for what the world offers here And so the author pleads with us here in verses 25 through 29 look at it with me one more time He says see that you do not refuse him who speaks For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us have a grateful heart, is what that word implies, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. The author basically summarizes it this way. Respond to God's grace. God has given to us His Son. The ultimate grace as a provision for our salvation. And the author says, respond to it. And he does so in two ways. He says, first of all, God is speaking, so obey him. God is speaking. Obey him. That is your response. With the explosion here in the last ten years of social media, never in the history of the world have people had access to more different voices than we do today. And yet one voice has remained constant to God's people in every age. And that is God's voice. And God's voice must supersede all other voices in your life. God is speaking to us today through His Word. His voice is authoritative. His voice is inerrant. His voice is found in the word of god and the warning from the author here to us is loud and clear don't refuse him who speaks to you obey him and then the author tells us why because god's voice is powerful and it is final you don't believe me then the author says let me remind you in verse 25 For if they, speaking of now the nation of Israel, when they were at Mount Sinai, if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven? In other words, if the Israelites did not escape God's judgment when they refused to listen to Him at Mount Sinai, how much greater is the punishment for those who do not respond to God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ? which comes from us from Mount Zion. In both cases, God is speaking, and anyone would be foolish to tune Him out. Listen, there's no middle ground on this. God is speaking clearly through His Word. Once, Bible scholar states it this way, the Word of God must be received or rejected. For those who reject the word, there exists no escape from God's judgment. At the end, a person either resides as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or perishes with the rest of the universe. God is speaking today. And the question is, how? How are you responding to his voice of grace? Don't refuse him. Don't ignore him. Don't tune him out. Instead, heed his voice in the word of God and obey what he tells us. God is not only speaking, but the author of Hebrews also tells us that God is shaking. So worship him. The author gives us a divine forecast, which is far more reliable than any weather station. He warns us in verses 26 and 27 that whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as the things that are made, and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, what he's saying is, when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the earth shook violently. And the author says, you know what, God's going to do that again. What took place at Mount Sinai was just a small glimpse of what's going to happen in the future. When Jesus comes again, God will not only shake the earth, but He will shake the heavens as well. And everything that is not built upon Jesus Christ as the foundation will be destroyed. All the kingdoms of this world will be shaken into oblivion. But here's the good news. You who believe in Jesus Christ and have responded to His grace in the gospel... The author says you, you, you alone are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. You will not perish along with the world. You will not be shaken on that final day. Therefore, don't worship this world. Rather, worship the God who is shaking the world. And this is the author's final conclusion in verses 28 and 29. Look what he says, Therefore, in other words, based on that God is speaking, because God is shaking, here is the response. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or let us be grateful, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, think through this with me for a moment. Under the Old Covenant, go back to the Old Testament here, under that Old Covenant, you you had to bring animals to sacrifice as your means of worship to God. And you would offer these animals, they were to be unblemished, spotless, you were to give them to the priest who would then offer them as a sacrifice on your behalf. That's the old covenant. But under the new covenant, Jesus has already been offered up in your place as the ultimate sacrifice for your sin and now has given you membership into His eternal, unshakable kingdom. And the only reasonable response to that kind of grace is to worship God with all your life. And to do so with reverence and awe. Or godly fear. The problem here is, we don't always do that, do we? We don't always worship God with all of our lives. We are prone to worship the false gods of this world. We are prone to give ourselves to passing pleasures and temporary treasures. And so we give ourselves to pursuing other things in this world. We give ourselves to gaining acceptance from other people. We give ourselves to making as much money as we possibly can. We give ourselves to the shakeable kingdoms of this world. And this is why the author closes with this picture of God, this final picture of God that's meant to remind us that running this race here, folks, is no game. This race is a matter of life or death. Because the author tells us, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, consuming fire. Let that image just grip your heart. And as you do, please know that God has not changed. The God of Zion is the same God of Mount Sinai. Both mountains, listen to me here, both mountains reveal the true living God. And it's the same God. Neither can be separated from the other. And so both visions of God must be held in focus as we run to the finish. God, listen to me, is both a consuming fire and yes, he is consuming love. And if you trust the promise of His unshakable kingdom, and if you lay up treasure in His unshakable kingdom, then the love of God will consume you. But if you reject the one who speaks from heaven, and like Esau, run after the shaky kingdom of this world, then you will meet the consuming fire of God as destruction in your life and not deliverance. That's the final words here from our author. And so he exhorts us, he says, listen, heed God's voice and worship God with all your life as you run to the finish. Now, let me leave you with one final question as we come to our conclusion in this series. A question for you to ponder in your heart before God. And that is, are you running toward the unshakable kingdom of God? Or are you running after the shakeable kingdom of this world? Because this is the whole author's point of Hebrews 12. He's exhorting us, in other words, if I can say it differently, he's basically saying, listen, don't run to the wrong finish. Can you imagine coming to the end of your life only to realize that you ran to the wrong finish line? And it's too late? to do anything about it. Instead, look up to the heavenly city of God and look ahead to the unshakable kingdom of God and run to that finish like Willard Cornett. Willard Cornett finished his race last night around 11 p.m. Do you think Willard Cornett has any regrets that he ran toward the unshakable kingdom of God now no way he's in the presence of our Lord and he's receiving his reward there are no regrets for that he would tell you if he could stand here today it was worth it don't run to the wrong finish Because the day is coming when everything of this world will pass away and those who have their hopes and dreams and their security and salvation rooted in this world that we touch and we see with our eyes will find themselves brought to utter ruin with it. Listen to what Peter writes. Look at this in your notes here in 2 Peter 3. Peter tells us the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat but in keeping with his promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells that's the finish folks that's what we run toward and so may all your hope Rest on Jesus Christ, whose coming is soon, who is worthy of all your worship, and who is more than able to preserve all that we place in His hands. So keep running the race with endurance. Don't quit. Run to the finish, knowing that you have come to the city of God, and knowing that you are receiving the unshakable kingdom of God. Let's pray. And as we pray and prepare for our response time, I want to pray what Paul prayed in Colossians 1. Father, we pray on behalf of our church and all those who are believers here. May you and may they live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience in giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. The praise team is going to sing just one chorus, and as they do, man, let me encourage you to go to God, do business with God in prayer, express your heart, confess your sin, whatever it is that you need to do.